NextJS 13 delivers on this promise of dynamic at the speed of static. That ability and that power, but still within the umbrella of dynamic rendering so that you can run experiments, you can run A-B tests, you can combine static and dynamic data into one component. Welcome to PodRocket. Today, we're here with returning guest, Guillermo Rausch, who's the CEO of Vercel and the creator of Next.js. It's great to have you back on the show, Guillermo. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me. Doing great. Happy to be back. Yeah, great to ha- have you back. I, I really enjoyed our first conversation, which was probably, I don't know, a year ago or t- t- time flies. Um, but I know a lot of new things have happened in uh, kind of the Vercel world, the Next world. Um, and I know you recently had your, your big user conference and there were a ton of exciting announcements coming out of that. And want to talk, talk about that, learn about kind of what's new. Maybe before we jump in, you could do a very, very quick overview of what is next in, in case there's folks who um, are not familiar or maybe ba- base, have a basic familiarity, but kind of want to know um, what, is, what is next all about. And then we'll jump into uh, kind of more of the details. Yeah, so Next.js is a framework for building websites and applications on top of React. And it has a couple of distinguishing features, like when you incorporate Next.js into your stack, it can kind of add itself to any data source in the world. So you can combine Next.js with headless e-commerce backends, with headless CMS backends, with all kinds of REST or GraphQL APIs. So it's gotten a lot of popularity over the last couple of years as a way of modernizing the front-end part of your application where your customer experience lives. And perhaps the most uh, salient feature of Next.js is that it does a lot to make really high-performance applications happen out of the box. So instead of having to relearn and re-implement everything that makes a great high-performance production application from scratch... Uh, you can just take advantage of Next.js uh, to do so. And in the context of the React world, where a lot of folks in, in the React space have been more used to client-side applications or uh, single-page applications, Next.js takes this different viewpoint of using the server, the cloud, and the edge by default. So it's kind of more optimized for SEO and just really large-scale applications, but it can also be used for building very small things like a simple static page. So scales up and down really well. In conjunction with it, we build the Vercel platform, which allows you to deploy your Next.js applications really seamlessly and take advantage of a global network that delivers your front end with the highest possible performance while also minimizing the amount of kind of operations work that you have to do as a team to really scale out this, this front-end applications. So um, to give you an example, Next.js and Vercel Power under Armor.com, uh, which is one of the largest retailers in the U.S. Um, uh, for sports and, 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 and clothing gear. And they take advantage of that ability to sort of plug in into an existing stack and speed up their, their applications with, with Vercel. Awesome. Yeah, thanks. And Recently, I know you had your, your big user conference and launched um, Next version 13. Um, and so why don't we look at a couple of the, the exciting announcements you did there. Um, 
maybe we could start by kind of talking about um, compi compilation, compilation infrastructure, um, and, and TurboPack. I know that was a, a huge announcement and got a lot of uh, excitement on Hacker News and whatnot. So, do you give us a quick overview, like what is TurboPack and, and why did you decide to kind of rebuild um, the uh, you know uh, compilation layer from scratch? For sure, Next.js has done a lot of technical feats that I'm really proud of. But when I ask people sometimes, what do you love most about Next.js is that they tell me, well, when I started using Next.js, I outsourced the configuration of Webpack. So uh, one of the things, in addition to all this great out-of-the-box production optimizations that we shipped with Next.js, it was this idea of zero configuration, right? So like when Next.js came out, the status quo was that to build a React application, you had to configure compilers, bundlers, minifiers, plugins, tool chains, development environments. And we said, well, no, I, I just want to build an app. I want to build a landing page. I want to build a dashboard. I want to build an uh, uh, e-commerce storefront. So we took this really opinionated stance of you don't have to configure a webpack. And I think in addition to all the great features that have given companies a scalability, like I mentioned, I think it was it was a non-trivial part of our success that we took that stance. And many have followed through with that same stance uh, ever since. Uh, and certainly you could still extend Webpack, but the idea was I, you sit down, you start writing your first component, your first page, and you're ready to go. Zero configuration. Now, in the past six years, since we first started dabbling into this idea of frameworks on top of React, things have changed quite dramatically. One of them is that the size of front-end code bases has grown exponentially. Uh, we ended up hiring the creator of Webpack to work at Vercel. And he I remember in his first conversation with me, he was like, I could have never imagined that Webpack would be used to the extent that it's being used, to the size of code bases that people are telling me are running on this thing. It was my research project when I was in college, he told me. And now it's been downloaded billions of times, right? Like it's, it's, a, it's a tremendous scale. Um, and the problem really was that Webpack and many other tools like it, like Babel, like Terser, a lot of what really made a dent in the world as a default tool chain for modern front-end applications, it was all written in JavaScript because it kind of emerged organically, right? Like we needed to, this, this thing was, it's, it's like a startup, right? Like all these tools like React, um, Next.js were having really fast product market fit and we needed to iterate very quickly. And for example, at the time, TypeScript was around, but it wasn't being used even to the extent that it's being used today. So the natural thing to do was to write all the tooling for all these tools for JavaScript in JavaScript itself. Now that things have matured more in the ecosystem and that a lot of the standards are kind of being set, right? Like, for example, the vast majority of applications in Next.js are being created with TypeScript. Uh, the vast majority of people are no longer extending configuration for things like Webpack, like the front ecosystems reach a certain level of stability. And because the demands are so high in terms of like numbers of files, numbers of packages, numbers of components, 
the tooling written in JS has not really scaled well. And what we started finding out was that the only way to continue to deliver a great developer experience, especially when people work on local and when they push the production to make their CI builds, was to start rewriting a lot of these tools in Rust. So essentially, the first thing that we introduced at Next.js.conf was our successor to Webpack. Uh, it's called TurboPack. It's written in Rust, not only because it gets better like native-level performance when it's you know processing files or interfacing with your file system, which Rust is just faster than JavaScript at, but it also has a new architecture that focuses on incremental compilation. And the main idea here is that it doesn't matter how big your code base gets, the scalability mode of this tool is just uh, basically better by design in a way where the work that's already been done will not be done again. So TurboPack borrows some of the lessons of tools like Bazel at Google that were used to run monorepos with billions of lines of code, this concept of incremental compilation. So in a nutshell, we're creating a quote-unquote faster horse. So we, we took Webpack and all of its success and lessons, and we're you know using Rust, which is basically hundreds of times faster at doing what Webpack was doing in JS. But in addition, we're introducing this novel, fairly novel architecture. I, I think it's quite novel in the, in the front-end world uh, to do things incrementally, to not do the same work twice. And we're ex- extremely excited about it, and the world has received it um, in, in similar fashion. Got it. Yeah, super exciting. And do you have plans in the future to rewrite kind of other parts of the tool chain in Rust or with a new architecture, or um, have what's next now that now that you've launched TurboPack? So, and to back up a little bit, like we uh, again, like the Next.js code bases were going so big so fast that um, when we started facing some of the scalability challenges with Webpack. One of the first things that we turned to was native code. So we would, what we did is we replaced Babel. So Babel was being used to translate the JavaScript syntax that developers were using in practice into the JavaScript syntax supported by web browsers. So to give you an example, React uses JSX a lot, which is not a, you know, by a spec officially supported syntax of JavaScript. And it translates into function calls. It translates into react.createElement. So those features, that uh, those syntactical features, Babel was processing the files and translating them into, you know, a JavaScript source that was understood by web browsers. Now, what was happening is that this Babel thing was actually pretty fast. And it, it had a series of rounds of optimizations by extremely smart people. Like I remember, I think Sophie at the, at, at the uh, React team at Meta worked on a lot of optimizations. Of course, the Babel team worked on a lot of optimizations. So you were down to like each, each file that you have to transpile takes like a millisecond to be processed with Babel. Now, the problem was, I remember looking at a trade sometime, one time that an engineer put in front of me and it was like, yeah, like Babel seems fast in isolation. But the problem is that some of the code bases that we're optimizing against have millions of files in them. So it turns out that millions of milliseconds is a long time. So we, we replaced Babel with SWC. So it was basically a Babel tool 
Babel-like tool written in Rust. And now we went from the realm of milliseconds to microseconds. So that's when we realized, holy crap, Rust is not just two times better. It's 10, 20, depending on how you, what phase of the process you're measuring, hundreds or even thousands of times faster. So that's when we, when our first journey in uh, starting to move to a more native tool chain. And now it actually makes sense to like, you know, take a pause and even reflect on this, right? Like most compilers in the world, most compiler tool chains are always written native code. When you download the Swift compiler, the C++ compiler, the, uh, you know, any, any mature tool chain for programming at scale is always written in highly optimal native code. So that's kind of when we started partaking into that endeavor. Now, Webpack is the thing that stitches together all your modules into optimal bundles to deliver to the web browser. And that's when, you know, it was kind of obvious to us at that time, like, yeah, at some point we're going to have to rewrite that in Rust as well. It also happened with the minifier. So Terser got replaced with SWC minify. And we saw incredible improvements. I think sometimes we we measured for mature code bases, uh, one customer of ours, like 13 times faster minification. And we're talking like a process that sometimes takes minutes. Uh, now it's starting to take seconds. So it's very exciting. To your point about like what's coming, we need to mature, stabilize, and make TurboPack even more extensible such that you can still have a lot of the benefits that you had with Webpack in terms of ecosystem support and extensibility, but obviously with with this in, improved architecture and with really fast performance. Yeah, very exciting. And the it seems like the other kind of of the big announcements in terms of uh, Next.js 13 is on the routing and rendering side. So maybe you could tell us a bit more about the new file system based router and um, you know what went into that, what does it do, and why is it exciting? For sure. One one of the uh, distinguishing features of Next.js that I think we're also quite early to is that Next.js gives you the ease of use of something like PHP, where you throw a file to the file system, and then it essentially becomes a route. So I mentioned that concept of zero config. So Next.js said no to the momentum of, I'm going to write my Webpack config for every project that I start. Next.js also said no to, I'm going to configure a router and download a router module and stitch it together anytime I want to put a route into the universe, like my homepage. I shouldn't have to download React Router, uh, wire it in, define my route. No, just put a file into the file system and it immediately becomes a route and so on. It turned out this ended up having tremendous benefits, not just for developer experience, but as I think about the Vercel platform, we can intelligently bundle code according to the entry point that we can know statically at build time based on your file system. It can say, well, it turns out that it can take the homepage route and bundle it intelligently as an edge function so that it can run globally. So the idea of a static declarative file system ended up having tremendous implications to even the ability for Next.js to become a serverless and edge-compatible framework. So with Next.js 13, we're doubling down on this idea of 
a declarative file system based router. And some of the things that it brings onto the table now are things like support for layouts, support for collocating application code together with your route tree without, you know, accidentally exposing source files as routes. So the, the code actually is just easier to read because your, your routes and your, and your application code can be in the same place and you can have a lot of confidence and safety in your design. The other thing that's quite crucial in, in terms of the rendering infrastructure is that everything is server first by default and that the data fetching, going back to those PHP roots or that PHP inspiration, the data fetching mechanism is unified. If you're familiar with Next.js, you always had to start with the question of like, is this page going to be static? And then you would define a get static props type of loader of data. Or you're going to say, okay, this page is going to be dynamic, meaning it's going to execute compute every time this route gets accessed. And you'd have to define a get server-side props loader. Now, Next.js is saying, just define your data fetching inside the component itself which improves developer experience and it removes this question of like a page is all or nothing stat or like binary static or dynamic. And now you can really start to take advantage of investments that have been going into react for years for their suspense based streaming infrastructure. So imagine a page that, you know, has a navigation that is driven by the CMS. So, you have uh, you're a you're a multinational company that has multiple brands, and you want to hover on an element that says brands, and there's twenty there. And tomorrow you acquire another company, and you want to add another brand. So okay, okay, now there's twenty one brands. That data is infrequently changing, and because it's part of your core navigation, we can call that static data, even though it actually changes, and you can even change at runtime because someone makes a change to the CMS that piece of data can be very safely cached inside every edge that executes the rendering lifecycle of that page. And now contrast that with like, let's move sideways in that, to that navigation. It says like, welcome back, Route G, because I'm logged in. We can call that dynamic data. That data needs to be evaluated on a per user basis. And I'm going to prioritize their correctness over like, for example, speed and staleness. For example, if I log out and I refresh the page, I can never see myself being logged in. It would be a security problem. So that little example gives you in one uh, you know, layout two kinds of data that we're thinking about here. And in Next.js 13, you can collocate those types of static and dynamic data right inside the component. So it's a very natural way of writing application that depends on data that is completely agnostic to the data backend still so it can be GraphQL. You can talk to the database directly if you want. So it kind of delivers on this dream that we've had for many years, which is that super easy to write, but actually delivers a global maximum of performance, stability, and uh, cost effectiveness that I think no other framework is capable of today. So what we like to say is Next.js 13 delivers on this promise of dynamic at the speed of static. So... In past years, people got excited about things like Jamstack, static generators, and and similarly over the years, we've found a lot of problems with those architectures. But there, there were also some benefits. 
Static is really fast. Static doesn't go down. Static is cost-effective. So Next.js 13 gives you kind of that ability and that power, but still within the umbrella of dynamic rendering so that you can run experiments, you can run A-B tests, you can combine static and dynamic data into one component. Uh, so I'm extremely excited about this this part of the announcements. Yeah, and it, it it's super exciting to hear because when we... Last night I was listening to our interview from a year or so ago and just catching up and reminding myself what we spoke about. And the the thing you said you were most excited about for the future was kind of the work that you were probably at that time starting to lay, lay the groundwork for Next 13. And you said you were most excited about blurring the lines between the kind of false dichotomy of static and dynamic. And now sounds like, um, you know, React 13 is a big step towards that goal. We, we've shipped it. Yeah, very exciting. And we didn't change our mind. Also very exciting. And so um, the other thing that I uh, it was refreshing myself on that we, we spoke last time about is the goal of bringing more workloads to the edge. Um, so can, can you speak a bit to kind of your efforts uh, towards that? Yeah, for sure. So one of the key things that has happened in the world of infrastructure in the last couple of years is the emergence of these edge runtimes. This ability to say, I can run JavaScript code at the edge as fast as I could be delivering a static page, for example. And this has been typically powered by either V8 isolates or WebAssembly. So this new technologies for virtualization that make it really cost effective to run dynamic compute from zero, from scratch. So this is not compute like Kubernetes that you know, you scale up, a, you have to create a cluster in like every region of the world and every city that you do business in. And, and you have to scale up some machines, some pods, some containers. No, this is like literally in five milliseconds, you could be running compute that has never been running in that data center before. So this is one of the key things that we're tying Next.js 13 into is if we want to deliver on dynamic at the speed of static, we have to infuse Next.js with this edge-compatible runtime that has this scaling characteristics when you deploy it to production and even when you're previewing it on the Vercel platform. So Next.js 13 is designed to be an edge-first framework. And this also ties into that ability to combine static and dynamic, right? Because I mentioned, suppose you want to say, I'm going to... uh, play around and optimize my contact sales button if I have a marketing page. And depending on the geography, right? I want to do a test where like West Coast, I give them this type of button. East Coast, I give them this type of button. And then um, I also want to revert it really quickly if it doesn't work out. Like if my metrics start diving, I want to go to some backend and flip a toggle and immediately worldwide my button reverts back to where it was. The only way to do this is by having some engine that's running compute for every request. If I had only done a static generated site, where like I give you just, you know, index.html to every user, I start losing that ability to, to experiment, to do flags, to enable certain features for only subsets of users, to revert things really quickly. And one of the features that we're introducing next 12 was this concept of edge middleware. So with edge middleware, you can start doing a little bit of that compute at the edge, 
you can think of it as like almost like a dynamic router of sorts that lives at the edge. It allows you to sort of direct traffic, but it was too coarse, right? Like with edge middleware, you can say, okay, like this request goes to page A or it goes to page B. With Next.js 13, we can start making those decisions in a more granular fashion. We can even do it at the component level because we're piggybacking on this ability to be fearlessly dynamic and to also be cost-effective for companies and individuals when you're deploying into the cloud. So a lot of our thinking was not just, okay, like let's make a better file system-based router or let's make data fetching easier, but let's also bring everyone in our community and, and uh, on the web into this journey of modern, faster, cheaper cloud virtualization. Got it. And I kn- we're going to talk about Ver- Vercel more in a minute. And I know Vercel is one of the best places to host um, a Next.js app, particularly because of kind of the you know native support for this edge-first architecture. For folks who are hosting on kind of one of the many other platforms from Netlify or Cloudflare or Supabase or Amazon or Google, can you adopt that edge-first architecture in the same way you could on Vercel, or are there things you get hosting your app on Vercel that you can't get on all the other providers? Yeah, I, I think the key thing that you get on Vercel is that it's a native platform that has been designed for this kind of cutting edge patterns in mind. And you know, you know that if you deploy an XJS application on Vercel, I think it's gonna, you know, it, it's from the same creators, from the same team. We have our, our roadmap in mind to be completely aligned towards the future of Next.js. So it's a safe choice in my mind when it comes down to like, okay, who understands Next.js better in this world than the creators of the technology? However, we're very open in terms of, you know, the build output of Next.js can be consumed by absolutely any platform in the world and adapted to their infrastructure. So uh, Cloudflare announced support for Next.js Edge applications. And I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of benefits to be gained from if you're already in that ecosystem, you know, you can use Next.js and, and, uh, and take advantage of, of whatever tools they have there. On Vercel, the idea of hosting is not just the only enticing feature. We think of Vercel as a collaboration platform and a workflow on top of Next.js. We give you the real-time feedback and the ability to share your uh, Next.js applications as they're being created, very much like what Figma did for design files, right? It's not just a point-in-time solution, but it's just a better way of building software. So we give you analytics along the way of you know how your website is performing in the real world. We give you the ability to comment and share every iteration of your front-end as it's being created. We plug into all of the Next.js features like image optimization, uh, to not just speed up the delivery of HTML, but of every asset uh, that you kind of deliver on your page. And we have the global network of over 20 different regions that we deploy Next.js to. So one of the biggest differentiations is that when you use First Cell, you're using a global first platform. And there's a lot more exciting updates that came out in Next 13. Um, we'll put a link to the Next 13 launch blog post uh, in the episode description for folks who want to check them out. Before we move on, one that caught my eye that I thought was really exciting um, was Next Font, which is kind of your new font system. And I've definitely uh, 
felt the frustration of wrangling uh, fonts when building web apps before. So curious to learn a bit more about your approach there and um, you know what you've built with NextFont. Yeah, for sure. So one of the things about fonts is that everyone loves them. Uh, the vast majority of websites uh, want to use uh, custom fonts or customize whatever the operating system. I believe there was... Uh, uh, a survey or, or data set that said over 60% of websites use custom fonts on the internet today, or at the very least of like high traffic sites. Um, needless to say, custom fonts are extremely common. The problem is that the web has been designed to be this medium that is very spontaneous, right? Like can compare with iOS apps where you download a big application at the beginning of your, you know, like, I'm going to use Facebook. I download it. I pay a huge price at the beginning of that. Like, I download like hundreds of megabytes to get that Facebook app. And then all the up- updates sort of happen asynchronously. And then I have all my assets there. The web works differently, right? Like, the vast majority of sites that you're going to visit today, you have no cash for whatsoever. You have no uh, preconception or you don't have any asset on your device that relates to that website that you're that you're going. And, and this becomes even more pronounced when you think about advertisement, email campaigns, or like in the rate of deployment, like everyone's deploying assets very quickly. So the caches become stale very fast. So the web is this very spontaneous medium. That's why at Vercel, we obsess so much with how fast we can render something cold. Hot, I think everybody can do fast, hot rendering. But fast, cold rendering is really the name of the game because, as I mentioned, the vast majority of websites that you visit, you have no cash for. Um, And we have to do everything fast. We have to do TLS fast. We have to do TCP. And now with Quick and HTTP3, we have to do the UDP fast. We have to do the lookup of metadata fast. We have to boot up dynamic compute fast. We have to fetch the assets fast, the static assets. We have to connect to your data source, and we have to do that fast. So when you think about fonts, this issue is even more pronounced because imagine that you don't do fonts well, which is actually my observation of how most people do fonts. You download the page and it says, go and fetch this font from this third-party domain. And maybe the font is like a megabyte because it's not optimized for the variants that you want, like bold, italic, the character atlas that your page actually needs. So in meanwhile, you're suspending the rendering of the page. Perhaps you're not even rendering the text yet. We all have that experience of like, we go to a website and the text is not there. And the text comes in like two seconds later. Um, And this is because people want the aesthetics of the custom font, but perfecting the optimization, both from a font size perspective, also from the idea that the font can be served on your same domain name, right? So like if I go to um, Vercel.com, the font can come in through the same connection that I've already established instead of looking it up in a third party. And again, you were asking about benefits of Vercel. Vercel being a global network makes it such that you both, you both have the cake and eat it too. You get your domain name to be obviously yours and to serve every asset that your application needs, but also it's globally fast. So your font gets delivered in the same domain. So 
this component that we uh, open source called at nexus slash font basically gives you a very simple developer experience for attacking all of these gotchas that exist with fonts, whether it's shipping the wrong variants, whether it's not shipping your fonts in your same domain name, which is not, not uh, in line in critical CSS uh, that's necessary for the fonts to work, which we're already doing, but of course it's part of this package as well. It also gives you this ability to say, like, actually, I want a font like Inter, and I want to grab it from Google Fonts, but I want to host it on my own domain. So we, we made the DX of saying, I already know the font that I want. Just, just bring it to me really fast. Uh, so it's one of those uh, technologies that I think is really special because it's easy to use and it's the, it gets pretty close to the absolute global maxima of performance optimization. Awesome. Um, so I want to talk next about uh, Vercel. So any kind of new exciting things on the, the Vercel platform side? Yeah. So one of the things that I think was at the very genesis of the Vercel platform was this idea of the deployment preview URL. So when I first designed Vercel and, and kind of introduced it to the world, the idea was you run one command and you get an immutable URL back of where your application lives at that given point in time. So you type in Vercel, get a URL. Make a change, type in Vercel, get a new URL. And the, and the main idea there was I was iterating on my startup at the time. I was like trying to like play with different landing pages, different styles, different designs, and iterating very, very quickly as one does, especially in the early days of a company. And I wanted that ability, okay, I make a change, boom, I can send the URL to somebody over Slack, at the time over IRC, over text message, whatever it is. This idea of shareability was baked into the beginning of this entire story. What we were missing was, how can we connect that into the actual collaboration flow of a company? How can we make it such that if the front engineer is working on Next.js application, they can share that link with their coworkers or perhaps even their clients, if they're uh, at an agency or they're freelancers or consultants, and then get comments from what the other person thinks about your work. So that's what we baked into uh, uh, Vercel with what we call preview comments. And it's currently in beta, but you can actually get to try it today by enabling it in your projects. Or if you want to check it out, we run this incredible experiment where uh, as part of the Next.js 13, so one, one interesting thing about Next.js 13 is it's a stable release. and if you're if you're using Next.js already, you should absolutely upgrade, and it just gets better and faster. Now, the app directory, which we just talked about with the new rendering features, that's in beta, so you have to opt in into the experiment for the uh, for the new support for layouts and streaming and React server components. And the documentation for for this is in beta.nextjs.org. So if you go there, you're going to notice at the bottom of the page, there's a toolbar that has some profile photos of people that have been recently active, if, if you log in. And then basically it gives you that ability to comment and report feedback on any piece of text or anything that stands out to you. You can press give feedback here. 
So that toolbar is the experience that gets embedded into every preview deployment that you make on Vercel. Um, and ever since we introduced it into our beta documentation, over 3,000 developers gave us feedback. So this idea of providing feedback and comments right into the thing that you're building, I think it's really revolutionary. I think it's going to change how people evolve products. We're making a better Next.js Docs site because every time we scroll it on it or we open it, we see the feedback and comments from the community right there in context. So the fact that we're going to roll this out to our entire Vercel user base soon gets me really excited. And on uh, continuing on the Vercel side, you um, recently acquired Splitby and, and kind of starting to move into the analytics space. So could you tell us a bit about you know why why you uh, did that acquisition and kind of what the future looks like for Splitby and the analytics side of things? Yeah, you, you can think of Vercel as a company that's on a quest to take every third-party asset and make it first-party. Like if, if I had to really simplify things, like open every web page and notice that the things that make a page slow are typically third-party scripts, third-party sl- uh, styles, third-party fonts, third-party analytics. So everything that's third-party should be made first-party. That's another thing that makes me so excited about the edge function concept because a lot of things that people put as scripts on the client should just leave us compute on the edge. So we talk about fonts being an example there. Um, Another example is analytics, right? Like if I want to understand how many people are on my site, where they come from, what devices are using, what pages are they spending more, more time on, Typically, it's meant a couple things. One, it's meant really slow and bloated third-party scripts that impact the performance of your site. Another thing it's meant is they're not well integrated into your framework. They kind of don't even know what your framework is. They kind of like they tell you like just copy paste this script salad into your head, and then they don't really understand even what you're building. And then in many cases, they're so overbearing with how much they want to grab in terms of like information about the visitor that by by default, it just means that you have to stamp a cookie banner on your page. And you're just trying to get some like high level data, anonymized, GDPR compliant into what's going on. And that's exactly what Vercel Analytics for Audiences, um, which we've incorporated through this through the acquisition of this company, Splitby, is giving you. So it's giving you privacy-first analytics, performance-first analytics, and it's integrated right into Vercel and the frameworks that we work on. So that's another example of how we have this holistic conception of let's build the best possible platform for frameworks like Next.js, and let's just not optimize, perhaps like I mentioned the delivery of a page as, as the end-all be-all, but think about the problem holistically. And what we found is that analytics tends to be one of those things that are truly essential to evolving a product. And most people get it wrong and, and, and Vercel is there to help you. And on the analytics side, when you talk about being, being more and deeper integrated with the framework, do you have plans to kind of add more functionality to the to the Splitby product in terms of how it ties like at the component level or, or you know what does that look like in the future? 
Yeah. So it already uh, it already does a subtle thing that's actually really important, which is that at a lot of the navigations that happen in modern front end applications are what you would think of a soft navigation or like a client side navigation, right? Because we pre render or server render the initial load. But then what's really cool about Next.js and what makes it so fast is that as you're scrolling through the page, we're prefetching uh, the next links that you might click. So by the time you actually hover a link, we're even pre, we're actually rendering it uh, or, or starting to like evaluate critical resources about that next click. By the time you actually complete the click, it's it feels incredibly fast. That's kind of like a, a defining feature of Next.js. In fact, when I use the internet myself these days, and obviously I'm, I'm really obsessive about this, but I can tell when something is built with Next.js because that click is so fast. Um, but with a lot of naive integrations of analytics, they miss tracking those soft navigations. So of course, split B is correct by default, right? Like we, we're building it with this kind of framework in mind. So not only with Next.js, but other frameworks, it'll correctly detect those impressions that are happening or, or page views that are happening client side. Uh, the, the other thing is that unlike solutions like uh, perhaps Cloudflare or others that are trying to also make it easier to embed analytics, uh, we give you an SDK that integrates right inside your repo. So you can control the rollout of the introduction of, integrate, of, of analytics and you can uh, embed it uh, programmatically. So speaking towards the future, we're going to start giving you more hooks in this analytics package to track things like custom events, you're going to be able to tie it into your React hooks. Um, another thing that's really cool is that we're uh, we already had Web Vitals analytics, so like we would give you like performance metrics about your site, and this were already framework aware, right? So like we kind of tell you, okay, like your your real world performance of a certain page is suffering. Go and look at this part of your source code to debug it. So over time, to your point, we want to do more around like component-centric analytics, both for performance and for audiences to kind of get, give you a sense of like what's working and what's not working. And another thing we want to do with audiences is get more into experiments and A-B testing. So we realize that the page, the concept of a page is just too broad. And most people want to get insights into what's happening more concretely in branches of experiments, in specific buttons or new things that are rolling out and understand who are the people that are being impacted by this. So it's very early days, but we have a really ambitious roadmap of, of where we want to take this. One question I see pop up a lot um, in the context of Next is React Native. And like for folks who are building applications that have both a WebView side and a React Native side, how do you kind of think about React Native generally and long-term, like any kind of deeper tie-in with, with Next? Yeah, I think one of the uh, interesting patterns that we've been noticing is a lot of folks are starting to embed more web views into uh, iOS and Android applications. And because Next.js makes the web so fast and so, as I mentioned, so instant to load on this like 
cold basis or like when you haven't seen the page before, it's still so fast loaded. Uh, it's naturally found its way into that kind of experience. The other thing we're seeing a lot with uh, Turbo Repo, which is our, our tool for managing large mono repos, is that folks are starting to share a lot of code between React Native, Expo code bases, and Next.js code bases. So at Rizal, we're huge fans of this concept of the mono repo. Your company should have one place where all your code resides, even though the boundaries of this code might be that it might turn out that you have like, I don't know, 10 different front-end apps and, and five uh, mobile apps. They should still live in one code base such that they can start sharing more resources over time. And at the very least, the developer has that option out, that option available to them. Right? Like, oh, I want to share the data layer between my Next.js app and my React Native app. So we're, we're seeing a, a lot of real-world success with this. This was kind of theoretical a couple of years ago. But now it's very common that I see startups that uh, are already sharing you know, a very non-trivial amount of their code and have very high-performance native apps and obviously very cool and, and high-performance web apps as well. So I'm, I'm very bullish on React sort of being the operating system for all software in the future. So finally, um, would love to hear kind of, uh, you know, what you're most excited about for the future. Um, and I know I asked that a year ago and you did a pretty good job of predicting exactly what you would build in the next year. So uh, the, the bar is pretty high here. And, um, you know, whatever you say, we're going we're gonna to hold you to that. So uh, <laughs> choose, your, choose your words carefully. Yeah, for sure. So I think Next.js 13 really marks the, the beginning of, of an entire decade of innovations for us because it creates the right platform or the right infrastructure. That's, that's why during the conference we talked so much about the right compiler infrastructure, the right rendering infrastructure. And I think the emergent behavior, the consequences of this are pretty non-trivial. To give you an example, the vast majority of developers today are very constrained in their ability to experiment with their software because it's so daunting. Like you can't just write an if-else branch to say, I want to try this out. I want to enable a new kind of experience, even for just one user. Or I want to actually deliver a new version of our homepage just for our own team, just for the company so that we can all get in there, experience it, test it on mobile, test it on, on, on our devices, and then give feedback back into the organization. So that idea of the constant real-time feedback combined with the constant shipping of this experiment to production uh, is something that has me really excited because the only constraining factor there until now was the technology. Of course, we couldn't write an if-else branch in the past because we're caching everything. We were taught that we had to cache with CDNs and, and all of a sudden my page is static. Or that we were taught that we had to do static generation. So I just have a bunch of HTML files to work with and really long build times. So we're getting rid of all those, I, I would call them like illusory trade-offs of software engineering un, until, of course, we're building on these incredible innovations and on the shoulders of giants like V8 and, and of course, React's multi-year investments. So I think it's going to change the way that people write software. Uh, so I'm very excited about it. Um, on the on the compiler side, 
it's just early days, but they the this turbo pack and turbo repo incremental compilation architectures have never been democratized or or made available to open source with the ease of use I think that we're bringing to the table. So I, I would love to see, and I think we will see teams adopting this monorepos and uh, creating even more ambitious and larger code bases without sacrificing their developer experience. We had a lot of teams reach out again, going back to those like illusory trade-offs saying like, oh, I had to split my app into this arbitrary micro front-ends because the app couldn't scale. The, like either Webpack would get too slow or the developer experience would get too slow or the shipping to prod would get too slow. So yeah, like you would take this like bad trade-offs to try to like still make progress and then block the software delivery pipeline. So those are the kind of like key things that I think are going to happen uh, over over the next couple of years that are quite, um, uh, they're very different to what the vast majority of the world is, is used to. Well, Guillermo, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it's been great to, to learn about uh, Next13, Vercel, and hear about uh, Vision for the Future. So um, yeah, it's been, it's been great, and uh, we'll look forward to speaking to you again in the future. Thank you.